0: Hi, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in East Asian Studies. Welcome and thanks very much for joining us today. I just spoke with Benjamin Elman about his new book, Civil Examinations and Meritocracy in Late Imperial China. This came out in 2013 with Harvard University Press. The book does a really wonderful job In taking an institution that many of us take for granted as an indelible part of Chinese history and take really uncritically as a part of Chinese history, that is the civil exam system, and shows the nuances, the transformations, the differences and the ways that our understanding of the civil exam system really transforms if we deeply contextualize it within not just social history, but also cultural history, political history, intellectual history, to see the texture of the reasons why certain books came on and off the curriculum, the reasons why certain policies um, were instituted to transform the curriculum from Ming to Qing, and, and other elements of the history of what turns out to be a really fascinating and really, really complex and really deeply textured history. Along the way, We learn not just about the kind of large-scale intellectual history of the civil exam systems, but details about physically what it was like to be a candidate in an examination cell. What were the anxieties that an examination candidate experienced? How did those anxieties transform over the course of late imperial history? How did the relationship between rulers in different periods in different dynasties and literati and officials that they were engaged with, how were those relationships mediated by decisions to include or not certain elements or passages on the exams? How did Central dynastic powers maintain control or lose control over a system that was ramifying into lots of different localities and lots and lots and lots and lots of different um, and increasing numbers of exam candidates over the course of the life of the late imperial examinations parts of the story read like action-adventure, parts of the story are really moving, and parts of the story are really surprising. And ultimately, at the end of the day, it's a story that is relevant and I think really fascinating both for people who are interested in a story about Chinese history, but also for people who are, as most of us I'm sure are, more generally interested in education, in modes of education, and in ways to bring... Different historical contexts to bear on understanding our own moment, our own experience with examinations, our own challenges with grading and our own ways of coping with an increasingly um, corporatized in some ways and an increasingly expanding educational system that's not always about learning first and foremost, if you look at it um, finally at different levels. So it's a fascinating book. It's a really, really rich book. We only just uh, scratched the surface, so I really recommend that you go and read it. It's also, as will come up in the course of the conversation, full of really wonderfully assignable parts that can be taken out and recombined or assigned as a whole in a lot of different kinds of courses um, that we might be teaching or taking. So I hope you enjoy the book, and I hope you enjoy the conversation. Thanks for listening. I'm here today with Benjamin Elman to talk about his new book, Civil Examinations and Meritocracy in Late Imperial China. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, Ben, and thanks very much for making the time to talk with me today.
1: I'm very pleased to join you.
0: So Ben, could you start us off by saying a little bit about yourself and your background and specifically, how did you come to work on the history of China?
1: When I was an undergraduate, I was choosing between being pre-med or an engineer or studying some things that I didn't know anything about. And So uh, I chose to study things I didn't know anything about, so I started studying Chinese and Chinese history and East Asian history and uh, had a number of teachers that were very, very encouraging. And uh, in the midst of that, wound up going to Hawaii my junior year to learn Chinese. Uh, Chinese was a critical language. Uh, It wasn't being taught in many colleges or universities except for major ones. So I wound up uh, spending a year in Hawaii uh, back in 1966 to 67, studying Chinese for a full four years of Chinese in one year intensive program. There I went to Taiwan, visited Japan, and then came back and was interested in East Asia at that point. My plans got a little bit interrupted in terms of having the Vietnam War and spending a number of years in Thailand uh, learning Thai and working in the Larry Eradication Project there. But one of the things that Thailand was very good for me was it took me away from the university and I began to understand social, political, and economic and cultural history as part of what I had originally studied as the history of ideas or philosophy. So my undergraduate education on East stages was mainly called philosophy uh, and a kind of intellectual history of ideas. Uh, when I spent time in Thailand, I learned how Buddhism and uh, other kinds of religions operated uh, in the real world uh, and that there was a society, a state, uh, a military, and all these other things that part of the problem. So I began to be, be interested in a new kind of intellectual history, which incorporated social, political, cultural, and economic uh, kinds of contexts to understand what the ideas meant for those who were practicing them, who were enunciating them. So uh, in many ways, uh, uh, I became much more than simply uh, interested in philosophical issues. I was interested in how ideas worked. And the examination system was uh, always a puzzle for me, but I was always, always puzzled by why people just took it for granted. And so, as they took it for granted, I began to wonder why we naturalized it to the point where we don't ask how it worked, why people wanted it, what were the results of it, what were the unintended consequences. So I began to sort of wonder why, for example, in the Cambridge History of the Ming Dynasty, uh, that everybody knew when someone was a Jinshu. They would say Wang Yangming was such and such a Jinshi in such and such a year. And almost every other page had the uh, letters for the abbreviation CS for Jinshu, but nobody ever said how they got there, how they got this particular degree. Why was part of the part of the plumbing, part of the building, part of the empire, Mm -hmm. uh, part of the educational system? So, in short, uh, what I had been doing is uh, getting interested in China uh, had led to this other frame of the trying to see ideas in practice, doctrines in practice, ideologies in practice, and the examination system was a very good example of it.
0: And one of the wonderful things, one of the many wonderful things that the book does, and we'll talk about them or many of them at least in turn over the course of the conversation, is it really does contextualize some of the widespread assumptions and sort of revises some of the widespread assumptions that we might have about the civil examination system by looking very, very carefully at the social and cultural and political context within which um, the mm-hmm. curricula and also the transformations in those curricula emerge. So, um, And we'll, we'll get to a lot of that, I'm sure, but that's one of the really great things about the book. So the book explores the civil exam process and the state curriculum, mostly during the Ming and Qing, but frequently contextualizing this period within earlier precedents. So you've published very widely before on all aspects, of or many, many aspects, of late imperial Chinese history. You've talked a little bit um, just now about how you came to work on the civil examination system, but of course this isn't your first book-length project on the civil exam system. So can you talk a little bit about how you came to to decide to write this book in particular, and specifically, how does this book relate to your previous work on the Civil Exams, and how did you come to decide to shape and structure this book the way you did?
1: Well, the Blue Book, as I call it, the larger book, which was published in 2000 by UC Press in Berkeley, uh, was oriented toward uh, a kind of a specialist manual understanding uh, how the system worked during the Ming and Qing, but went back to earlier periods, how it evolved, uh, what uh, the idea systems that were involved, the kinds of society, issues were involved, economics, why the government paid for it, ultimately what happened to these people, and what were many of the unintended consequences. So I spent most of the 1990s gathering material after having published two earlier books on Qing, and ming Qing intellectual history, I wanted to see the examination system as part of that world, as part of the plumbing, no longer simply take it for granted, as I said about the uh, Ming history, uh, Cambridge history project, which just took it for granted and made no effort to explain how it worked, why it was there, Uh, and indeed it seemed as if it had come out of uh, some sort of natural process uh, that uh, humans weren't necessarily involved in, they just operated within it. So I wanted to show that it was constructed, it was argued for, it was defended, and that a court and a society agreed upon its implementation, agreed upon pushing it forward, but for different reasons and for different kinds of uh, problems that they felt could be solved. So in many ways, uh, the earlier books had been on ideas of practice, philology, debates and issues. These were all part parcel of the examination debates as well, and the issues of what should be the curriculum, what should be the main texts, how are we to parse, to parse the phrases that are in these texts. So in many ways when students were reading and preparing uh, for the examinations to pass or fail them, they were parsing sentences, they were going through the passages, they were memorizing the passages, they were inculcating the very text that intellectual history was based on. So in many ways, it was a kind of interesting set of, of practices that I was growing interested in, and it was the basis for the scholars who I'd studied earlier in different kinds of contexts, whether for the Evidential Research Movement of the 18th century or the Changzhou New Confucianism of the uh, late uh, 18th and early 19th century. Uh, they, all, all the actors, all the agents had been involved in the examinations. Uh, they uh, passed them as... Uh, children and as young adults. Then when they became officials, they became examiners, and they tested them as uh, magistrates in the uh, 1,400 uh, uh, counties or or, or such, in the various prefectures, in the various provinces. So not only did people pass the examinations, they went on to be examiners for the the materials, and there was a relationship between the court, the examiners, and the poor examinees that became so naturalized that people couldn't imagine a world without it. Uh, when you see the Mongol transition between the Song and the Ming Dynasty, it was possible that the, the uh, Yuan Dynasty wasn't really interested in the examinations very much. They were very small scale, uh, no more than 1,100 uh, graduates at the highest level. Jinshi, were uh, the result of the uh, Yen Dynasty system, the Song had graduated 40,000, 39,000 plus uh, Jinshi, highest degree holders. The Ming later had 25,000 altogether, and the Qing also had about 25,000 altogether. So in this framework you could see that the examinations were something that depended upon the court and the society to favor, and the Mongols had been very reticent about it. They been held back from having examinations during the early part of the reign, and only in the thirteen 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 fourteen period put them forward, but never on a very large scale. So, it was not given that this system would always last, uh, but the Ming Dynasty, after uh, it uh, unified China in the uh, 14th uh, century, the late 14th century, chose to reinvigorate the system and chose also not only to reinvent the examinations as they had been held in the Tang and Song Dynasty, chose to give it a new kind of curriculum based on Song, so called Neo Confucianism, or Tao learning as I call it way learning, uh, and ultimately make uh, the system not only part of the capital uh, educational system and not only part of the provincial capital system, uh, as the Tang and the Song had done, but to push it all the way down to the counties, that the 1,400, 1,500 counties uh, all had magistrates and they all had examinations, examinations for the civilian part of the bureaucracy and examinations for the military part of the bureaucracy. And so it became a huge elevator shaft of uh, young people going up and uh, old people coming down, the state penetrating down to the county level, uh, ideas percolating upwards. And so it was a fascinating kind of system. And I was really trying to put together a, a co- context of showing how and why it worked and why it was so valuable. And, of course, this was also uh, an answer to the debates of earlier students of the examination system who argued that in many ways it was an interesting uh, institution, but in the end it was a failure. Uh, It produced a very, very limited orthodoxy. Uh, It produced a very limited set of Confucian doctrines. It was based on a very few texts, the five books, the five classics, and the four books. And that in many ways, the uh, system itself was uh, itself bereft of any real educational purpose, any real political focus, and that it just seems to have gone on too long. And by the end of the 19th and 20th century, it was finally and graciously dismissed as something that there shouldn't have been in the first place. So it was an odd kind of story. Line, and I tried to show that the failure narrative for China and the failure narrative of the examination system was in many ways written with a sense of hindsight that we didn't really understand how they saw it from the point of view of producing it. We saw the results and the uh, end point of the game, teleologically, and then read that back into the beginning, and seemed to fail to realize that in the beginning, beginnings were fresh, beginnings were new, and uh, they couldn't have foreseen what was going to happen, uh, but that in the long run, the four four or five hundred years of the Ming-Ching system from 1400 to 1900, it had re- reasons for its existence. There was a raison d'etre that it did well. And it did things not just for the state and the society, per se, but it did things well for uh, creating uh, a bond of culture, a bond of education, a bond of knowledge for those who were in, this, in the government and those who were without the government. And it gave them a discourse. It gave them something to hold on to. But most importantly, it gave them a partnership. The imperial system was not fiat from the emperor down. It was in many ways the emperor working with his bureaucracy, working with his advisors, working with his grand secretaries during the Ming dynasty, and ultimately trying to uh, perpetuate an uh, ideal system of government. And they spoke in terms of an ideal system of government. And hence, the second volume, the red volume, focuses on meritocracy. Uh, and brings that into the fore when the earlier Blue Book focused more on how the late imperial system worked. And what I wanted to suggest by shifting the title uh, to meritocracy was that this was, in many ways, the beginnings of what we all do in the 20th and 21st centuries. We all have examinations, we all have college entrance examinations, we all have law boards, med boards. There are all kinds of examinations that we go through, uh, and that the uh, Chinese uh, civil examination system was the first great institution of this order, uh, that had done this kind of thing, and they had done it for the name of creating an ideal government. The meritocracy was those chosen because of their merit, those chosen because of their uh, their abilities, their tie, uh, as, as it was. So in that context, we began to see that this particular system had very strong um, uh, uh, meaning for the Chinese system, the imperial system under the Manchus, or the Mongols as well, but it also had global significance. And the Jesuits, when they came to China in the 17th in the 16th they marveled at this particular institution once they understood it and gathered that it was a writing examination. They weren't sure because they weren't allowed into the various uh, examination compounds. It only was somewhat later that they found out it wasn't an oral exam. It was a written exam uh, in that context. So they admired it. And I would argue that even the Protestants early on, uh, while by the end of the 19th century argued that it was one of the banes of China, examinations were in many ways the reasons for its downfall, that initially they learned from it quite a bit. And I mentioned in the Red Book the rise of London University as an examination university. London University did not have the wherewithal to compete with Oxford and Cambridge in the beginning. They were the great universities of, uh, attracting the, the best and the brightest. Uh, and in many ways, London University couldn't compete. But what it did was it set up a building. It uh, had a set of uh, examiners, and a student signed up, paid their money, and took the examinations and got their degree. And ultimately, London University seems to have followed that model in the 1830s and 1840s based on certainly what they knew about the examination system in China, that if you didn't have the funds, you couldn't hire the the best teachers, have the best faculty, nonetheless could be a measuring place which allowed people to get a degree based on expertise and take the examinations and ultimately have a kind of an education on the cheap. And I think I read from that that the system from China in many ways was read in such a way that the educational system was a very, very peculiar one. Uh, that the examinations took precedence in evaluating candidates. Teachers were out there in the families, out there in the counties, and in the prefectures teaching away, but that there were no so-called universities. There were no so-called schools, per se, uh, that existed in a framework of education that we have in the modern world. The examinations uh, were a substitute for many of the things that were going on uh, in the institutional system of teaching per se. So uh, if you try to imagine our current university system where we uh, brought students into UDC or brought students into Princeton and there would be no teaching, they would take examinations and that would be it. Then they'd get their degree. You can imagine what that kind of system would be like. And the Chinese system should be operated that way, but I would suggest London University and other uh, places of education, figured that out also, that standards, when they became uh, standards of the state, standards of the society, standards of the country, could see examinations that we open it up to everybody, anybody could take the exams, theoretically at least, and we test them and give them their due based on that. So I thought it was an interesting system uh, that worked from the bottom up. It was one of the few institutions that actually went from the emperor all the way down to the county level with the magistrates and their local elites, uh, certainly affecting uh, popular culture, popular society as well.
0: Mm -hmm. And one of the actually uh, really interesting things about the book um, that you've alluded to already in discussing the resonances between the late imperial civil exam system and more global and also more modern modes of education and modes of testing is that you talk about um, a little bit in the introduction, the classical exams as a kind of underestimated harbinger of modern forms of distance learning. So for um, readers who are interested actually in modern forms of education, distance learning in particular, there's some really interesting uh, ways that this story kind of speaks to that. And you mentioned that explicitly in the book. It's, I think, a really interesting right. part of this.
1: It's, it's empowering. I think my larger argument about language being a limiting factor and the language uh, cut out many of the people who didn't know classical Chinese, the way many was Latin cut out many people in Europe who didn't know Latin, uh, that's one side of the story. But the ability to take an examination, to pass it, and then also be empowered because of that examination was an interesting contribution to Uh, education. And the Chinese themselves bemoaned the fact that examinations took precedence over education per se. The great academies were great academies, but in the end, if you didn't pass the examination and didn't have a degree, your stature was regarded as relatively secondary. Uh, And similarly, uh, in in the United States, argue that a degree from Harvard or Yale or UBC or Princeton uh, should represent learning from great teachers at the great universities, when from the Chinese point of view, uh, there was that, but there was also the sense that You passed the exams to prove yourself, and anybody could do that, and the best families, the best lineages, the best uh, temples had teachers to teach students how to work into this framework. And I think we understand that aspect of what drew them to the system. Uh, Just to change course a little bit, I think the unexpected consequences of this would be that the examination system was very, very successful in drawing people into uh, the expectation uh, that classical education mattered but most of the people never ultimately held office, uh, that uh, upwards of 90, 95% of people in the Ming and Qing, in particular, but even during the Song, failed the examination. So a system that had so many failures uh, had to be measured in a new kind of way, and most people always looked at who was successful have been three five seven percent through past examinations and sort of focused on their careers what I did particularly in the red book, although it had begun also in the in the blue book was to say what really carried the system forward with the with the millions and millions of failures and failures was the wrong word to, to talk about that they were were classically literate. They were reasonably well-educated. They could take the examinations per se. And if they failed the exam, they got on with their lives and did other things. And so you had a broad literary elite that went into writing uh, novels and uh, short stories like Pu Ling. Many became doctors like... Uh, uh, having failed the examination several times. And many became teachers, many became uh, pettifoggers. That this framework of getting people educated had certain loopholes where other people could fail the exams and still see the usefulness of having learned all of this and take on other positions in the society. So that the educational system became sort of premised on the standards of the examination system, even when most 95% of the people failed. This unexpected consequences of men failing, becoming and doing other tasks showed that reading and writing mattered, literacy mattered, and that if you were a member of the writing elite, you could actually make a good living writing novels for a general audience, you could write plays, you could do a whole range of things. Doctors could write medical texts and read ancient medical texts and argue that their learning was equally just as important as could astronomers and interests and yin-yang specialists, that they learned the important ideas, concepts, and ways of going about doing classical research, that this carried over not only from the examination arena and the 1,500 counties, the 75 prefectures, of the 17 provinces during the Qing Dynasty, 12 during the Ming, and the central government at all levels. It carried not only beyond that, but to the entire society, so that it had a rich pool of, of people who to some level, at some level of literacy, not, not literacy per se, and the full classical level, but enough literacy from the various uh, 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 texts that we used at the beginning, uh, the various uh, kinds of uh, three-character classics, uh, and other kinds of primers that we used at that time, that everybody had a reasonable uh, sense of uh, uh, understanding of what the classical edition was all about, and what to do, and how to go about it. It honored those who passed these examinations, but there were many who became honored, like leisure done, uh, because they did other things with their literacy, did other things with their knowledge, and carried on their family traditions in medicine and pharmacopoeia and the like. So in many ways, it put together a kind of interesting uh, Anidist uh, kind of... Uh, Uh, elevator shaft from the very bottom to the very top. People went in and out, and people fell out of the system all over the place. But it worked on its own terms in a way that I think we have certainly underestimated by giving it a a negative grade in the 19th and 20th century.
0: So let's to understand how these transformations happen, let's get into some specific parts of the book that chronicle this. So the book itself is organized into three parts. The first part looks at the construction of... What you call way learning. And way learning here is a term of art that's also itself a contribution to how we understand um, classical studies in this period. And you look at way learning in part one first as a kind of mainstream classicism at the end of the Southern Song and then as a political orthodoxy during the early Ming. And the, the first part of the book looks in detail at how this becomes. Uh, political orthodoxy and the ways in which some texts are incorporated and others aren't. It's a really interesting part of the story. The second part of the book book looks at, as you've been um, just talking about, the Consequences, both positive and also unintended, after 1450 of having an empire of civil exam failures who were nonetheless well trained. And you, this part of the book really emphasizes the positive unintended consequences rather than the failure aspect of it, which is what I think a lot of other studies do. And so it's, it's also very interesting in that way. And finally, the third part of the book um, continues on and looks at the many ways that the exams and the curricula were transformed and adjusted in response to changing times all the way through the 19th and then early 20th century up to 1905 when the exams are stopped. So let's get into it. Mm -hmm. So the first part of the book, I won't, um, because we have so much to talk about in the rest of the book, I won't ask you to talk about this in too much detail, but I'll just mention for listeners um, that the first chapter really looks in detail at the ways that the founding of the Ming Empire and the founding Emperor of the Ming, Zhu Yuanzhang, um, really shaped the curriculum um, of the exams in order to support the kind of vision of rulership and to downplay the possibilities of challenges to that rulership that he um, espoused as part of his rule of the Ming. And you talk here about specific attitudes toward the inclusion or not um, of particular texts. So this part of the book looks at the exclusion of Mencius under Zhu Yuanzhang, looks specifically at differences between northern and southern candidates and quotas involved therein, um, and also moves from Zhu Yuanzhang to look at Yongle and the important ways that Yongle revises the classical curriculum at the, in the early Ming, um, which actually winds up shaping a lot of what comes after in the Ming. So in order to kind of bring us into what happens in Chapter 2, do you want to talk a little bit about Yongle's revision, sort of what's happening to this curriculum in the very early Ming that we need to understand in order to understand what happens in, um, to the curriculum in the later Ming?
1: Right. I think Yongle comes right at the end of the process and climaxes it in his father, uh, Taizu, Zhu uh, Yan, and Zhang is very important in setting this up. But I think the ultimate story that I want to put here is it was not automatic that way learning or neo-Confucianism was going to become the so-called state orthodoxy. It had to have people who were in favor of it becoming mainstream. And those who were in favor of it becoming mainstream were not necessarily emperors, were not necessarily officials. These were in many ways the Confucians in local areas. And I think what we've seen in the research on local areas during the Southern Song after the Northern Song, is that as the scope of the imperial state declined in the transition from the Northern Song to the Southern Song, and ultimately the literati role in government also declined under the Mongol rule for the 13th century and 14th century, that in that situation, we begin to see a muscular kind of literati in local arenas, like when, uh, like Jinhua and otherwise, on certain other areas, that take it upon themselves to follow Confucian precepts, to argue or Confucian ideals, or Confucian political institutions, in the framework of a weak state. And these are very, very muscular literati, I think, as Benjamin Schwartz would like to call them. They saw themselves as the mainstays of the system. Uh, dynasties could come and go, but we literati and our society stay and survive. And we literati certainly follow the way of Zhu and his teachings. Remember that Zhu Xi died in... Uh, Without any honor, he was under house arrest until his death in 1200. And there was much criticism of way learning at that point. And the dynasty declined. The Yuan dynasty reappeared, but few Confucians, few literati, were uh, brought into the institution, were brought into uh, holding office and the like. And so that meant, in many ways, that the, uh, the Mongols left the local society, local governments to those who were elites in that local government and that local society. Uh, and they then they began to have a muscular sense of themselves, particularly the Jinhua Confucians, and they influenced Zhu Yanzhang, who was there for a while during the Civil War with the Yuan Dynasty and his own competitors in the 1340s, 1350s. And it was there that they convinced Zhu Yanzhang that uh, if he's going to become the new emperor of a new dynasty, that he should put it together in the framework of the ideals of Confucianism, but particularly the ideals of way learning. Uh, and the teachings of Zhu Xi, the teachings of the Chung brothers, the teachings of the Northern Sun Confucians that had articulated a universalistic politics, a universalist economy, a moral economy, to speak, and that this would be the way Zhu Jong should try to put this state this together. So initially, we, uh, becoming mainstream was not the doing from the top down of the emperors. It was the support that the literati at lower levels, unempowered and outside of government, uh, sort of argued for themselves and said, this is who we are, this is what we believe, and this is what we want. And the emperors, in many ways, chose that uh, and chose it very carefully because they needed the help of the literati to uh, become uh, mag- uh, magistrates, to become provincial governors, to help in the ruling of the government. But Zhu Zhang and uh, the Yungla Emperor, as aut- autocratic as they were, needed the uh, bureaucrats to run the government. They were not going to allow complete laissez-faire uh, in the system. They were going to restore the empire of the Han and the Tang. That was their goal in this situation. But what happened over time is that slowly Zhu Zhang, who was illiterate at the beginning uh, and in many ways was a rebel. Uh, who had, had ties to white Lotus rebellions, uh, white Lotus Buddhist rebellions, ultimately learned the rules of this game, became classically literate, and stumbled upon the Mencius uh, in the uh, 1380s and suddenly recognized that uh, Mencius had argued for regicide, that uh, a ruler, a corrupt ruler, uh, a ruler who was not really a ruler could be got rid of, and that didn't please Jiye Zhang very much. He also began to be suspicious of his former allies from Jinhua and elsewhere, who served as prime ministers, who served as public officials, and he began to recognize that his own prime minister, Hu Wei Yong, was uh, in many ways encroaching upon his power, or so that's the way Zhu saw it. And so Zhu uh, Zhang uh, carries out a, a dramatic purge of Uh, The prime minister gets uh, rid of him, uh, gets rid of upwards of 50,000 officials in a a kind of a bloodbath, and then not only gets rid of the officials who are in his way, he also gets rid of the institution of the prime minister. So what we begin to see is a give and take between state and society, and that the formation of way learning as an orthodoxy, the teachings of Zhu Xi, were... Partly the meeting together and uh, partnership of uh, the local elites uh, and uh, the state, but that the state, the imperial emperors themselves, through their control of the mentions, through their control of the orthodoxy that they chose, began to influence that orthodoxy, began to make it mainstream, but mainstream in a way that was acceptable to the emperors as much as it was acceptable to the Iraqi. So from that point of view, they began to argue in the particularly the Jungno reign, he climaxed the whole thing to say, "I am a sagely emperor who follows the teachings of Zhu Xi, the Daoxue way learning teachings, but I am different from the uh, uh, literati because I hold power. I am both a inner and outer uh, Confucian. I am a inner uh, literatus and an outer ruler, and I have combined the legitimacy of politics, the Jurchong, with the legitimacy of uh, ideas of classical learning, the Daoxue." So in many ways, we began to see that the Confucianism that emerged in the 14th and 15th centuries was not simply literati Confucianism, although it had begun that way, but it had been augmented, changed, redirected, uh, and forced upon uh, the literati uh, with a great deal of violence uh, involved to uh, put together this kind of thing. One of the ironies, of course, was that Zhu Yan got rid of the Mencius, although he allowed it uh, uh, later because of once they removed all the offensive passages, but that uh, his son, Niu uh, could allow the Mencius complete to be established, because Yung Lo came to power by uh, revolting against his nephew, who had been given the throne by his father, and ultimately argued that he had gotten rid of an evil emperor, a uh, useless emperor, an emperor that had gotten in the way. So from that point of view, Yung Lo was able to use the Mencius in his favor in a way that Zhu Zhang did not see in his favor. So that the Confucian canon allowed for multiple opportunities, and that emperors and the literati both were able to appeal to it, uh, appeal to it uh, sometimes at great cost to their own lives and their own safeties of their families. Many people perished in this particular framework, but that in this becoming mainstream, way learning uh, went through uh, not only uh, uh, the support of literati, not only through the support of the rulers, but that there had been a great political struggle. That political struggle had involved a great deal of blood, and that the results of that bloodshed had yielded a uh, orthodoxy uh, that was very different from the orthodoxy, the ideals of the literati themselves. It was not only a muscular literati, it was now muscular emperors that began to rule the throne and uh, no longer had to uh, deal with prime ministers like Laura sure. Or the earlier prime ministers of the Tang, the emperors were the emperors in charge of everything, and the literati, the best they could hope for, would be grand secretaries of the emperor. That was all. So, in the midst of this transition from Song uh, Yuan kind of uh, Neo Confucianism and Way learning, we begin to see that it has been imperialized. Uh, the ruler has put his stamp on it, and those that would ignore that stamp have an idealized view of neo that unfortunately misses the realities of why this set the stage for a compromise, but a compromise after a very considerable bloodbath in the late 14th, and uh, early 15th centuries.
0: That's right. And it was super bloody. I mean, that one of the really great things about this chapter that I love is it turns the emergence of a particularly codified form of way learning into a kind of action-adventure story. I was reading this, you know, running into the other room to tell the rest of my household, like, did you know that he slit some guy's mouth from ear to ear? Yes, yeah. Carla, I knew that. Like, wow. And I'd go back and read, what happens next? So there's a lot of kind of action-adventure in this story, in this chapter.
1: Well, I think some, a lot of it is astonishing, because most of it has been written out of the record, uh, either the, either ignored or simply painted as the autocracy of the Ming Dynasty and the autocracy of the Ming Empire, which uh, was accused later of being the basis of the decline of the entire imperial system.
0: Just like the early history of these civil exams is really written in blood here mm-hmm. in a really fascinating way.
1: Mm-hmm. So,
0: let's, um, so as we move on... I'm not going to ask you to talk about every bit of um, the Mm chapter in the interest of time. So I'll just kind of take us through and and let listeners know what's going on in the next chapter. So then we can look at the unintended consequences. So the next chapter looks in detail at um, the kind of shared features of this common um, group of degree holders that Mm -hmm. emerges um, after this early period of of way learning in the early Ming. And you talk here about um, the importance of their having a common classical language that functions as an instrument of policy, but also a kind of lingua franca. You talk about the importance of the memorization of a shared canon, the importance cognitively of a shared literary writing style called the Eight-Legged Essay. Um, And if we had more time, I'd ask you to talk in detail about that here, but I'll just kind of mark that because we'll come back to that later. The Eight-Legged Essay is actually a really important part of this story. And you also talk um, early here about the, um, you know, the, the fact that this didn't always work according to plan. Final rankings were accused mm-hmm. to be often really haphazard. Cheating was rampant. Bribery was rampant. And this first part of the book really sets those issues out and in really interesting. Detail. So after we um, read the, read about this and sort of set the stage, we come to this part two of the book that goes into the kinds of unintended consequences that you were talking about earlier. And this part of the book again shifts the narrative away from failures um, of the exams to really looking at some of the positive transformative consequences of this system through the Ming and the Qing. So one of the unintended consequences that you talk about um, is focus is the focus of chapter three, and this is. Something you call the circulation of Ming and Qing elites. So. The chapter looks at specifically at the movement of Chinese elites through a classical education that was based on moral and statecraft theory and aimed as or aimed at exam success. And the circulation here is key. So can you talk a little bit about the ways that circulation of candidates physically is important? Because I think this is part of the story that really links up with broader trends in global history and the history of knowledge that are emphasizing right now and have been um, for a little bit of time the importance of itinerancy, of movement, and of circulation of individuals in producing knowledge. And so this chapter really emphasizes that as an important part of the story of the civil exams in a way that I think is surprising and uh, really important.
1: Yeah, Well, thank you for the question. Uh, In many ways, I think we've overestimated uh, the examination system in in terms of social mobility. The older terminology that Hooping D and others used to describe this was a kind of, uh, Mobility of an elite, mobility of a meritocracy that reproduced itself periodically over time, keep the trash uh, and going forward. I think in many ways people thought that the examination system produced that social mobility. And in fact, I think it may have been quite the opposite that the examination system uh, was the result of, in many ways, of that. Its success, in other words, was the result of a different kind of circulation that people wanted to get into the into the, into the group, wanted to study and pass examinations, and wanted to take office in that situation, uh, but often couldn't do it. They couldn't either pass, or if they passed, they didn't pass the highest examinations and couldn't be officials. so they had to do other kinds of things. So, in many ways, the failures uh, were one part of that social mobility. There wasn't social mobility so much as moving into governor's slots or Mandarin's uh, bureaucratic slots as local uh, county magistrates, but ultimately they had to become other kinds of workers in the world of uh, late imperial China, whether as doctors, whether uh, as pettifoggers, whether as teachers, uh, whether uh, as uh, other kinds of book printers and all the rest. They had to become part of the cultural system in a different kind of way. So that circulation of the so-called losers out of the examination system, after having been in it for many years, also led, for example, to the prominence of Buddhist monks. Many Buddhist monks always claimed in their biographies that they always were loyal and wanted to be Buddhist monks, but most of them began by taking examinations, failed, and like uh, teachers and uh, pedophagas and the like, became monks because that was the choice, their second best choice, they thought, although over the long run, becoming a monk is probably their better choice. So in other words, these people uh, circulated into other fields and other areas, and the gyroscope of the examination system actually helped that and pushed that forward and made it possible. Literacy was a very dyna- net, dynamic possibility, and hence uh, we see uh, a framework of uh, circulation uh, from the failures of the examinations uh, to uh, doing other kinds of things. So their social mobility was uh, not in uh, many ways the result of uh, becoming members of the state. That was one area that uh, was very different from what we expected. The other side of it was that these local uh, uh, people uh, slowly but surely recognized that the main arena for prestige and honor and wealth was to become an official. And uh, we have small petty. Uh, rich peasant farmers, we have small uh, merchants and other groups that began to uh, save up their money and invest in education. Particularly the merchants are empowered to take examinations in the Ming Dynasty. They had not been empowered readily during the Tang or the Song. And so merchants could translate their wealth, uh, their, their, their sort of economic capital, into a kind of a cultural capital, educational capital, uh, that allowed them to invest in teachers and ultimately become competitive in the system. But before they could do that, they had to be reasonably wealthy, they had to be reasonably well-educated. There was no public school system, as I mentioned earlier, and if you going to be educated, you either went to a temple school, you went to a charity school, but there weren't that many of those, and uh, your family had to provide most of your education. The great lineages, one of their raison d'etre was to create schools for their male sons as well as their daughters. Uh, the daughters would be uh, literate for their sons later when they married to be part of the uh, uh, imperial system. So we begin to see that even girls are more and more educated into the system, not to pass the exams, but to be mothers who can teach their sons the classics and uh, ultimately help them become members of the classical arena. So this framework of circulation tells you that it's a society on the move but it's not on the move as a product of the examinations. It's a product, of, it deals with examinations as the central gyroscope around which these other movements unexpectedly begin to emerge. And that ultimately uh, the exams are the result of a kind of a social circulation of poor which peasant farmers, uh, middle-level merchants, and other kinds of artisans who ultimately put together put together enough educational capital that their sons are competitive in the examinations, can enter into the examinations, and become officials in some ways, or at least hope that they would be that way. So in this context, we have uh, a kind of interesting circulation of the society into the examinations. The examinations, in many ways, rather than the cause, is the capstone of their achievement. They've made it. Once their sons can become a local shangyan, a local uh, licentiate, then that's already... Certain, given certain tax privileges and certain legal privileges that uh, are worth going, going for, even if the son never goes any further. So in that context, the examination system was not the cause of social mobility. It was the framework within which social circulation occurred. And in some cases, some families uh, had poorer sons that became uh, the highest degree holders, Jin-shir. uh Those were few and far between, and social mobility peasants becoming ginger, peasants becoming grand secretaries, peasants becoming uh, uh, provincial governors, was not in the cards. And so the transformation of the society was not on the model of a modern meritocracy. It was on the model of a very cyclical process of economic change, social growth, social expansionism, and that the imperial civil service exams allowed and in many ways added uh, some Uh, power to that transformation, but that it wasn't the full blown cause of uh, why the system was the way it was. So in that sense, uh, we see tremendous amounts of circulation, but not circulation that we expected. The failures are loose out there in other parts of the society, and these poor groups that want to get into the system are slowly but surely making it putting together the resources that will allow them to enter into the next stage of the society through their sons, grandsons, and great-grandsons. That's
0: right. And one of the other really interesting things that's happening in this chapter is that you're showing not just social circulation, but concomitantly a kind of geographical circulation as mm-hmm. candidates are moving physically to right. to new areas geographically um, that are testing sites. And so there's also a physical movement as well as a social movement. That's right. It's really interesting. Yeah.
1: So um, I I, I would simply you know, argue that uh, the Ming was the most mobile uh, uh, political system of its time. That's right. uh, and people were on the move, uh, and uh, it was a remarkably mobile society, but not in terms of uh, the mobility of social mobility. I would argue people were circulating very widely, and the ability to become official became very rare within this success story.
0: That's right. And this chapter goes on to, and again, I'll just mention this just in the interest of time, it goes on to talk about the transformation from Ming to Qing and looks at the ways that the Qing reconstituted the civil exams, and there's some really interesting um, moments there for people who might be particularly interested in non-Han languages and what's happening with Mongolian and Manchu, Um, and you talk about that um, by the end of this chapter, the kinds of translation examinations and non-Chinese language examinations that are offered. that's another really interesting part of this story for listeners who are interested in Manchu history. Um, and I hope there are lots of listeners who are interested in Manchu history.
1: Right. I would simply I would simply add to that that the Manchus were very perceptive about the examination system. Unlike the Mongols, who didn't quite know what to make of it and put it into effect at a very small scale, the Manchus very quickly recognized that, that they wanted to bring the, the Han Chinese into the state system, that they wanted uh, to be able to rule from the top uh, over this vast uh, world of the former Ming dynasty, that the examinations were the best way to come to grips and to come to terms with the literati world. And so this vast uh, examination system hardly skipped a beat between the end of the Ming and the Little Qing, and then as you look at the 1640s exams, the 1650s exams, they were almost all held without any problems. And the uh, Manchis put their own examiners from the north in place, but they recognized very quickly that the literati uh, would join the state, that they were given the opportunity mm-hmm. to do so, and honored in that uh, frame of the uh, collaboration. Uh, when the Manchus tried to change the curriculum a bit uh, and tried to get rid of or derail the eight-legged essay, they found that it was the Han Chinese who resisted it. Mm-hmm. The Han Chinese had invested so much in education based on the four books and the five classics and the eight-legged essay that they felt in many ways that the Manchus were overturning uh, their traditional beliefs, overturning their traditional educational system, and in many ways uh, putting the, the Chengju uh, way learning orthodoxy and orthodoxy, setting it aside a little bit uh, in the focus on so-called uh, policy questions that had more political, social, and economic context to them. And the Manchus saw that very quickly and saw that that following the ideals of the late Ming reformers like Gu Yanwu, Huang Zhenxi, and the others, was a mistake But the vast majority of the literati were not Huang Zengxis and Gu Yanwus. They wanted the system to reward them. They had invested so much cultural capital into educating their sons and their families, and they had depended on it so much that the, the Manchus themselves saw the terms of their own legitimacy and very quickly... Uh, cut away from the more reformist agenda and the late Ming Confucians and set it back and said, this is the examination system you want, we will honor it, we will put it forward, and we hope that you will all thrive and be successful.
0: That's right. And we're going to actually hopefully have time to talk about a little bit of that more specifically toward the end of the conversation. So to get to that, I'll just mention um, for listeners that there is a chapter that follows this that looks at many of the the um, phenomena that you've actually talked a little bit about. Um, the sort of uh, ways through which gentry and merchant elites monopolized resources to qualify um, for the civil service, the importance of language and the mastery of particular languages. Um, in the dynastic school system, you talk about um, dynastic schools as way stations or testing centers. Here um, and you talk about the kinds of people who were or were not actually eligible for taking the exam. So although we've been talking about the exams as you know relatively open, there were some groups of people that were not allowed to take the exams, and so you talk about this um, in some detail.
1: Okay. Not, notably women and exactly. women and monks and Taoist pre-lab. Who precepts it in life were forbidden from taking exams.
0: That's right, but there was a, lot, a huge age range. So there's one guy you talk about um, who was 104 when he passes mm-hmm. the exam, and I just that's I love him. So there's a that's a really interesting counterpoint to the story that might be surprising for readers yep. and listeners. Is there's a huge age range here?
1: Right. Well, some some of it terrified the pre- the emperors. In the Chenlong reign, for example, uh, they asked the examiners to take note of how many people were taking exams who were 80 years old. And this was at local examinations. The magistrates were reporting to the general emperor that we're beginning to see four, five, six, seven, eight, uh, eight to ten people who are in their 80s taking the local licentiate uh, exams. What do we do about it? And the emperor encouraged them to sort of give them honorary degrees and gave them sort of uh, titular kinds of appointments to deal with that kind of issue. In some cases, for example, at one of the local examinations, there were three generations of a family taking the same licentiate exam. The local shengyan, and so they had three generations uh, march into the uh, examination yamen together: the oldest grandfather, the father, and then the son. And the question was, was that a good thing or not? Uh, but they made the best out of it. They made a ritual out of necessity, and they tried to honor it. But they also recognized that that showed that these people had failed exams over and over and over again, and therefore the dissenters, those that might uh, uh, be. Uh, opposed to the system because they kept failing uh, after all the Ming had fallen because of this kind of situation of failed examination candidates who took advantage of the decline and economic breakdown of the Ming dynasty and the various kinds of uh, weather hazards and uh, population health problems that uh, 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 demises in the Northwest had ultimately touched off uh, a whole range of dissenting examination failures we took, it, took advantage. So the state was unclear, and it tried to, you know, honor those that it could honor, but it also had to worry about ultimately those like uh, the Feng Chen, the typing leader to come, that would lead a different kind of response to the examinations and not accept such failures automatically.
0: And let's actually, um, I want to actually get to Hong... Next. Right. Um, before I mention that, I'll, I'll just mention for listeners um, that there is a chapter here, chapter six, that we're not going to talk about in detail, but that talks about some of the um, really detailed experiences that candidates would have had upon arriving at an examination compound. What the experience of sitting for an exam would have been like from, you know, where does the food come from, where do they sleep. And so there's a whole uh, detailed chapter that talks about the physical realities and the physical demands and also the the modes of surveillance that were involved in the actual process of sitting for and taking these exams. So the book pays um, really detailed attention to not just the ideas and the large-scale transformations um, and not just the historical contextualization, but also the really embodied contextualization of the experience of the exams for for candidates and for graduates. And so that's a really, I think, important part of the book, and that's in Chapter 6. Of course, another part of the experience of candidates was anxiety. And Chapter 5, which is in its partner chapter in the blue book um, in the blue book there's also a chapter on anxiety and dreams um, and the sort of a, the anxious experiences that candidates would go through and that's probably one of the most widely si- widely assigned chapters of the blue book i know many of us actually assign that in classes on late imperial china and now i'm going to assign this chapter um in classes on late imperial china it's a really exciting chapter of the book and it takes us into hong Chen. so this chapter um, talks about um, various aspects of the kind of cognitive experience um, and the demands cognitively on examination candidates memorization specialization in a particular classic and then it looks at the ways that um, examination candidates coped with this experience from turning to local religion to turning to different techniques for exam prediction and so you talk about you know everything from physiognomy to spirit writing to geomancy but perhaps one One of the most um, fascinating of these ways that, or of these techniques rather, um, that candidates tried to predict exams and then deal with the exams, sometimes while they were happening, is dream interpretation. There are lots of examples in this chapter of um, specific dreams, general types of dreams that are recorded that help us understand um, the experience of candidates. And one of them in particular um, leads us to some of the transformations that happen in the last part of this story. And this is the story about the dreams of Hong Xiuquan. Mm-hmm. So, um, could you talk about that a little bit? Um, there's a, there's a ton that we could talk about. It's a sure. super fascinating part of the story, but can you um, introduce Hong Xiu Chen's examination dreams as a way for us, perhaps to move to what's happening as we transition to the late Ming part of this story?
1: Well, the initial dreams that were, that I focused on were dreams of success and dreams of success that were born out. So all of the Ming, uh, Optimized, the long the highest degree holders, uh, apparently had dreams. Those dreams sort of uh, uh, promised their future success, and when that promise future success came, then the dreams were authenticated. Now, were the dreams really authentic, or did they come after the fact? My argument would be it really doesn't matter for the historian. Uh, it's very, it's impossible for us to get back to the original dream, the original material, now it was presented, and it's also very hard to know how they could predict the success, even though probably everybody would get some of prediction of success. But nonetheless, uh, the Ming Dynasty made this a cottage industry. Uh, uh, various candidates attending provincial and uh, central examinations in the capital on their way up or down the Grand Canal would stop off at famous temples. Temples were the famous people who passed the examinations had stayed. They would uh, sleep there and try to get uh, into a kind of a dream environment where they would dream with premonitions of their own future success. So the dream then, so the- if
0: I can interrupt just for a moment, because um, I know there's not going to be a good time later, I just want to mention this is another way in which the book actually speaks really nicely to contemporary concerns. There was just an article on the importance of visualization techniques for uh, mm-hmm. Olympic athletes. So That's right. this is actually a really nice kind of, again, resonance with what you're talking about in the book. The importance of visualization is a kind of an importance of, or a, a version of daydreaming. Um, and again, I just want to highlight this is one of many ways in which this story about right. late imperial China really has contemporary. Resonances. So I'm sorry. Right.
1: Um, no, that's fine. No, that's fine. I mean, some of these games were quite interesting. One sort of uh, relatively uh, uh, problematical uh, high degree holder. Uh, is shown receiving drugs from a Taoist priest to sort of enhance his memory. Uh, and so drugs are entering into the business. Some of them are receiving support from merit-making monks who support what they're trying to do in that sense. So you see the, the frameworks of religion move into that. And merit-making, the general sense of doing good for your society, of uh, providing wealth for those who are not all as well off, who are sort of created as a kind of a moral uh, uh, agenda for trying to, authenticate those who were authentically allowed to pass and those who failed because there were dark shadows in their lives. So the dreams in many ways became black and white, good guys and bad guys. If you betrayed your family or betrayed your girlfriend or whatever, she could come back to haunt you uh, in the inside of the examination system. So the pressures on these young men was considerable. And in many ways, to deal with those kinds of pressures from their families uh, and from the society at large, they developed certain kinds of safety mechanisms and belief in religion, belief in uh, the fact that it's the gods that are doing this, that are making the decisions, not the examiners, freed them of responsibility. Uh, instead of a, 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 a competition of merit, became a competition of those who had the gods on their side. And uh, this was a way of dealing with uh, the odds framework. What's the probability of passing these examinations? If it was one in a hundred, which was at reasonable odds in the late ming Qing dynasty, then that was maddening odds. And the question is, how could the examiners find your paper... Uh, It must be through the God's uh, selection process that these favors are being selected out. So, in the end, the examiners didn't matter. The system itself was a kind of a naturalized system within which uh, the good people were rewarded and the bad people were not rewarded, and it was judged accordingly, although many didn't buy into that for But the dreams were quite interesting, and when I looked at Hongshou Chen's dreams in comparison to them, I found that Hongshou Chen's dreams were a continuation of those earlier traditions. Normally, Hongshou Chen is looked, at, looked upon as a as an, uh, kind of a crazy man, a uh, person who uh, perceived his meeting with God and Jesus Christ and naming himself the son of God and the brother of Jesus Christ. That these kinds of things were preposterous and uh, suddenly were a sign of complete madness. Uh, I argued in many ways that certainly the anxiety led to certain kinds of problems of health, certain kinds of stabilization, certain kinds of unhappiness. But the Kung dreams were continuous with the dreams of the Zhuang only his was the dream of the failure. And his dreams of the failure were to ultimately say, What does the failure do? It's, uh, whose fault is it? It's not just the examiners and the gods, it's now the entire system. And uh, Hongshou Chen, slowly but surely after failing many times, decided that the problem is the state, stop the problem is society, and it's not the examinations per se. I will be the emperor of the new examinations, and I will judge people. Fairly and appropriately in the new world that I will create as a result of the Taipings. And so, beginning in the Southwest and other areas, he begins to marshal his anxieties, marshal his uh, uh, frameworks and arguments. It's the system that's the problem, it's the literati that are the problem, and it's the Manchus that are the problem, and we need to overthrow them. And this was the kind of thing that uh, the Channel Emperor and others had feared the most. Uh, there had been different kinds of uh, events that occurred uh, the stealing of cues uh, to represent the deaths of these Chinese who were subservient to the manchus and the like and so in the sense the the Hongshao uh, trend dreams represented in the middle of the 19th century the ongoing evolution of a cutthroat examination system in a society that now had 450 500 million people. There were increasingly more haves, more have-nots than there were haves, and the uh, rich elites were beginning to face the problem of how do we deal with a society that's no longer able to produce enough to eat uh, and drink and live and have clothing for in unprecedented scale. So we reach in the 19th century an unprecedented China that has a, a perennial institution, and that perennial institution is suddenly facing the same problem, is having trouble keeping up one out of a hundred pass the the 99 others are going elsewhere and they are people like Feng Zhou Chen in this case and he gathers huge armies around him and conquers the richest part of China and in many ways destabilizes the Yangtze Delta in favor of his agenda he has examinations taken there the the curriculum changes to Christian materials and materials that are a part of his uh, Sino-Christian religion that he creates and invents at that time it's terrifying in many ways not only for the Chinese and their rulers, it's terrifying for the Westerners who have tried to preach Christianity missionaries found Hongjo trying to be crazy and nuts to suddenly appeal to be the brother of God, Jesus and the uh, son of God uh, trumped them as well because none of the product of missionary could make those kinds of claims And arguably, arguably the preempting of Jesus's place in the pantheon was something unbelievable and unacceptable to the Christian powers. And then as they came to the defense of the Qing dynasty, its Manchu elite, and its uh, Chinese uh, provincial elites to defend that dynasty. So in many ways, we get a true picture of China in the 1850s and 1860s by seeing Hong Xiu's dreams of a failure and the political, social, and economic repercussions of that failure in the context of the entire system, with which the examination is a very important part.
0: That's right, and by the middle of the 19th century, um, when the Taiping Rebellion, Hong Xiuquan, are just completely re-envisioning the exams. By this point, as the whole third part of the book actually shows, leading up to this, there are all there are already um, or there have already been frequent calls to reform the exams and actually successful reformations of the exams. And so um, you you look at this in detail in chapters six, seven, and part of eight. I mean, this goes. This includes um, transformations from reinstituting poetry as part of the exam. Um, this mm-hmm. had been taken out of the exam in the Ming, as you talk about early um, in the book, and it's put back in at one point in the Qing. You talk about also this is um, a really important part of this story. The increased emphasis in the 18th and 19th century on policy questions. Um, now, I don't want to spend too much time talking about this, but this is a really important part of the general arguments that you're making in the book. So I do want to at least take a, a few moments mm-hmm. to focus in on this. Now, um, what listeners and, and readers might not initially understand is that the examination throughout this period typically had three parts, and whether um, material was sex- was um, or put into the first part second part or third part was generally a marker roughly speaking of its relative importance to the grading and you talk about you know early in the book the fact that as the number of examination candidates increases sometimes only the first part of the exam um, is really taken as the basis for grading. But one of the things that happens that becomes really important for contextualizing this within larger intellectual and social changes in the 18th and 19th century is there's a renewed attention to trying to reform the exams to in in different ways um, at, at different points revivify or reinvigorate the importance of policy questions. Mm -hmm. Um, Do you want to take a moment to talk a little bit about that? And I know we're almost out of time, but because you're making such important arguments here about the importance of um, reliable learning and then the importance of um, sort of uh, natural studies to what's happening in the exams, I think it's important to take a moment to at least look at this as an issue.
1: But most of us, when we think of the written examinations, we think of the eight-legged essay as a literary exercise, and we forget that the examinations themselves had begun with uh, policy questions as oral questions in the Han dynasty. The Great Confucian Dong Zhongshu, Shu, for example, had his answers orally recorded when he had an audience with the emperor, Han Yudi. And in that context, that policy question uh, and answer as an oral uh, standing that has lasted throughout the dynasties, Uh, during later dynasties before there was paper, uh, during later periods of the Zhou dynasty and the Han dynasty before paper was used. These oral exercises were all policy questions uh, that were the mainstay. In the Tang and the Song, slowly but surely, these policy questions were uh, adumbrated and ultimately made important, but they were also complemented by literary examinations, examinations about law, examinations even about Buddhism and even about, uh, not about Buddhism, about Taoism Were occurring at this time. They were actually during the uh, uh, Buddhist Taoist exam- examination questions at that time. So these policy questions had always been there. But during the uh, Ming Dynasty, they were turned into this, uh, they'd also been there during the Sung Dynasty, uh, but they became particularly important in the Ming Dynasty as a record of what was on their minds in terms of statecraft, in terms of talking about the emperors as the forefathers of the dynasty, talking about education, talking about uh, what they would say called Li tsai, we would call uh, the economy, how to deal with resources, how to allocate resources properly, to talk about teaching to talk about the uh, orthodoxy. There were a whole range of these practical issues that were called policy questions that were put in place and put into the third part of the examinations and were a very important part of the grading system. When uh, Earlier I mentioned that the Manchus had tried to reform the system by getting rid of the eight-legged essay and favoring the uh, policy questions. That's what they wanted. They felt that the literary exams were useless, but in many ways, those literary exams were the ones by which people were graded more easily. The literary exams gave issues of style, issues of numbers of characters, issues of balanced prose, issues of each phrase being balanced by another phrase, each sentence balanced by another sentence, so that style was easier to grade. If you missed a character here or you missed a rhyme there, that could be taken off, points would be dropped from your issue, and you could be chosen whether you would pass or fail. So the literary aspects of it were the easiest to choose for pass or fail. The policy questions, in terms of being right or wrong, uh, became somewhat less important because uh, the students would write generally the same themes that came from the dynastic histories. But nonetheless, the questions give us an insight into what was on the examiner's minds. Why, did they, why were they concerned about the, the calendar being out of whack by almost one full day in 1525? The Jesuits later would come in the, uh, China to help them reform that calendar based on those kinds of issues that the Chinese really recognized. We see that early in the 1520s and 1530s. As we move into the Qing dynasty, the policy questions are in name very, very important and honored, but in the end, because of the onslaught of the numbers of candidates, that the uh, literary exams, because of their gradability, because of their so called standards uh, for evaluating pass or fail, in many ways they trump the uh, policy questions. Chen Long was furious about this. Chen Long in the 18th century repeatedly tried to reform the policy questions and tried to get them to be the focus, but in the end gave up because the policy questions were not easily gradable. Uh, It was impossible to grade 50,000 papers so easily, but you could grade them on the body of the eight-legged essay exam. Add to that the poetry question, poetry was rule-like. If you missed a character here, if you missed a rhyme there, or a couplet didn't work, uh, or you made some other kind of tangible mistake, grading the paper became much easier. So in that sense, if you had 25,000 candidates for 100 slots, it was much easier to grade the paper by looking at the eight-legged essay. Now add the a poetry question to it and you became much more impartial or at least you could perceive yourself as much more impartial in the papers. So the policy questions suffered as a result because they weren't gradable, they weren't easily evaluated because of their content orientation. They were open adjuncts but in the end Uh, We are more interested now in the questions the examiners asked than we are in the answers the students gave, because they increasingly answered the questions with shorter and shorter answers. Half the time they repeated simply the question and then added a few sentences to make it seem as if they were answering the question. So the policy questions in many ways were one of the great disappointments of the system, uh, with which everybody disagreed, everybody wanted them to be more important, and they couldn't figure out a way to put it in place and make it be important. At the end of the examination system in 1901, when there were major reforms, it was clear, at that point that they were going to shift not only the knowledge to global learning around the the world, uh, Western history, Western laws, they were also going to make the policy questions preeminent. So the policy questions beginning in 1901, finally were made the most important questions on the examination system. But it was too little too late, and the entire regime was beginning to buckle, although it rallied for a bit in the early 20th century. And by 1905, it was felt that these examinations were irrelevant, even in their new reformed state, even with the new policy questions, they were not good enough, and that schools, universities, schools modeled on the Western system would be much better than these examinations. So in that sense, the policy questions were uh, kind of an a, a important feature of the entire system at the longest uh, History uh, of uh, educating and uh, being models for others to learn about the problems of statecraft in this society. In the end, they became uh, sort of uh, perfunctory and ultimately faced the problem of they are not easily gradable. We have a similar problem now with our. Uh, uh, so-called college entrance examinations, which now, have re- which now have required essays. And the question is, how do you write a required essay? Uh, how do you mark your essay? So, How do you begin? How do you have a transition? How do you have a middle level? How do you argue for it? And then how do you tidy it up with a conclusion at the end? Those are all very, very formalistic kinds of issues. Uh, and the question would be, will the uh, so-called college entrance examination essay become the eight-legged essay of the United States in the 21st century? for admission to college and the like. It's very hard to grade these literary exams other than through questions of style. And the ironies for the Chungju so-called way-learning Neo-Confucianism was that the essay content was focusing, even in the uh, eight-legged essay, on the way-learning style doctrine, but ultimately what was measured more were the stylistic uh, eight-legged rules that were followed: beginning, end, uh, couplets, uh, parallels, discussions, uh, and ultimately tidying it all up at the end, but those became preeminent ways of writing an essay. So essay writing per se began to be a very problematic issue for the Chinese and I think we, we who use examinations in the 20th and 21st centuries are also beginning to see these limits uh, that ultimately you can replace a, a kind of a multiple choice question with an essay, but how do you grade that essay? And how can you be consistent about it when you have millions of candidates writing essays and answers? The Chinese were first to confront that conundrum and try to deal with it. And in the end, uh, the solution was not ideal.
0: And again, um, I think this is a, a really good place maybe to bring this to a close because you're again bringing out an aspect of the book that's really, really relevant to circumstances that a lot of us are dealing with right now, either as teachers in a university classroom who are ourselves dealing with issues of grading and assignments and increased numbers, but also from the perspective of students um, who are also dealing with uh, this part of the problem of the corporatization, perhaps, of of the university. Um, So, and, And I'll just mention, speaking of using essays and using examination essays, in Chapter that talks in detail about the Eight-Legged Essay and the structure thereof. Um, For listeners who are interested and for eventual readers um, who are interested in um, the Eight-Legged Essay as a kind of pedagogical device in the context of late Imperial China courses or other courses, there's a really detailed explication and example of a prototype of an Eight-Legged Essay in there that's actually a really fabulous tool for teaching um, for Mm -hmm. those who are interested in integrating this book in different ways into the classroom as well. So, Ben, um, thank you so much. There's a, Thank you. There's a ton of material in the book that we didn't have a chance to get to. It's extraordinarily rich, but I hope, um, as has become clear in our conversation, rich in a way that's also very engaging and that parts, um, like I mentioned, a kind of like action-adventure story of the examinations. It's a really, really rich story. Um, we didn't have a chance to talk about a great deal of material that's in the book, and given that, is there anything in particular that we didn't have a chance to talk about, but that you'd like to mention for listeners, and perhaps especially for listeners who haven't yet had a chance to read it?
1: No, I think we've covered most of the ground. I think the, the issue also is that uh, the rise and fall of examinations in China are a, a letter of uh, kind of a Uh, uh, interesting allegory for our own use of examinations in the 20th and 21st centuries to solve all kinds of educational problems, and no one has yet gotten a solution for dealing with mass examinations. When you have millions of candidates, it's very hard to figure out a process other than examinations for evaluating them and choosing them, and yet everybody knows that in the end, not necessarily the best people are being chosen at the highest levels of these examinations. By the time you got to the highest levels of the Jinshi examination, uh, they were all extraordinarily gifted. They were all extraordinarily well read. They all they were extraordinarily uh, classically oriented, and yet only one out of a hundred would to get chosen. So, in, again, the major issue is what happens to those who drop out, those who fall by the wayside. And China is a good uh, example of you know, the failures exact having their day, having using their literacy, using their abilities, using their training in other ways. Uh, than just simply the mainstream of the examination system.
0: So, Ben, now that the book is out and congratulations on the book, what's next for you? Are there any projects um, that are currently inspiring you?
1: Well, uh, since I've been chair, I've been working with a number of people on projects where we work together. So, <laughs> we have a couple of volumes. One has just come out with Jingzi at Yale, where we had a conference on uh, trying to. with the uh, history of science in China during the Republican period. Normally we deal with history of science by talking about failure in China before 1900. We decided to have a volume to talk about Republican science from the 1880s to to the 1940s. We talk about the success success stories of science in the Republican period uh, and why science was so important in the 20s, 30s, and 40s to open up the Republican period as a way to look forward in terms of science and not just backward in the medium, medium model to try to explain why things failed. Mm -hmm.
0: Uh,
1: Another project we did was to rethink the language uh, and to look at the role of classical languages throughout East Asia. Uh, And so we have a volume coming out with a number of people in Colombia who met together with us at Princeton to talk about uh, the new thinking about the vernaculars in classical languages and take into account uh, Sheldon Pollock's new findings on Sanskrit uh, and cosmopolitan languages, comparing classical Chinese to that, and no longer taking for granted the Latin vernacular country uh, counterpart that we used to use drawing on early modern Europe as, as the framework, and taking the linkage between the vernacular uh, and the classical language as a sign of different levels of the language, different cadences of the languages that existed very well. It was never a question of a live language versus a dead language, but the languages were living together at different levels and with different kinds of purposes within the society, like that there were registers at the top which focused more on classical language, and the registers at the bottom that focused more on, or on uh, the vernacular, and those registers were part of a single living body of linguistic material, we have to come to grips with it. We're also doing a project on uh, medical texts that I think you joined us for one of the sessions, where we talked about medical philology and how, how the classics were read in the medical traditions and how they were evaluated, and ultimately how that worked out in terms of meaning re-evaluation of the medical classics, and ultimately tried to uh, come to grips with the limits and possibilities of the medical classics in the face of Western learning new medicine coming from the Jesuits, and then ultimately the Protestant impact back to the 19th and 20th centuries. So, those as a chair I've been able to, to deal with. Uh, a longer term project I'm still working on, and now that I'm not chair, is uh, comparisons between Japan, China, and Korea in terms of classical learning, medical learning, and an interest in natural studies in the 18th century. I've published a number of chapters from that, uh, but I'm still trying to put it together into a single volume.
0: Wonderful. Well, best of luck with that work and congratulations on not being chair anymore so that you have <laughs> more time. Um, thank you. Thank, thank you again, Ben. It's really been a pleasure and congratulations on the book.
1: Thank you very much and thank you for your time.
0: You've been listening to new books in East Asian studies. Thanks very much for joining us and we'll see you next time.